Chapter 10 Unbinding Lazarus When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. John 11, 43-44 Our Lord Jesus stands alone as a worker in many things. No one else can unite His voice with the command that says, Lazarus, come forth. Yet in certain points of the gracious work of God, the Master joins His servants with Him, so that when Lazarus has come forth, He says to them, Unbind him and let him go. In raising the dead, Jesus is alone, and in this He is majestic and divine. In setting free those who are bound, He joins with His disciples, yet still remains majestic. His more prominent feature, though, is His condescension. He lowers Himself to be with us. How exceedingly kind it is of our Lord Jesus to allow His disciples to do some little thing in connection with His great deeds, so that they can be workers together with Him. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 As often as possible, our Lord joined His disciples with Himself. Of course, they couldn't help Him in presenting an atoning sacrifice, but it was their honor that they had said, Let us also go, so that we may die with Him. John 11, 16 And that in their love they resolved to go with Him to prison and to death. Our Lord understood the fickleness of their character, yet He knew that they were sincere in their desire to be associated with Him in every part of His life whatever it might be. When he later rode into Jerusalem in triumph, he alone was honored with cheers of Hosanna, but he sent two of his disciples to bring the donkey on which he rode. They cast their garments upon the colt and set Jesus upon it, and as he went they spread their clothes in the way. Thus they contributed to his lowly splendor and shared in the exaltation of the royal day. A little later, when Jesus wanted to keep the feast, He specifically stated that He wanted to keep it with them. For He said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Luke twenty-two fifteen. He sent Peter and John to prepare for that Passover. He directed them to the large furnished upper room, and He told them to get things ready. They were allowed to do anything that they could do. Their Lord was willing to have led them even further, but through weakness they stopped short. In the garden He told them to watch with Him on that dreadful night, and He sought sympathy from them. Backward and forward thrice He ran, as if He sought some help from man. He cried in sorrowful disappointment, Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Matthew twenty-six forty. Ah, no! They could go to the edge of the abyss with Him, but they couldn't descend into its depths. He must tread the winepress alone, and of the people there must be none with Him. Isaiah 63, 3. Yet as far as they could go, He did not scorn their dear society. He allowed them to drink of His cup and to be baptized with His baptism according to their capacity and if their fellowship with Him in His sufferings went no further, it was not because He warned them to stay away, 
but because they did not have the strength to follow. According to his own judgment, they were intimately associated with him. For he said to them, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. Luke 22:28. Beloved, our Jesus Christ still delights for us to associate with him as far as our weakness and foolishness will permit. In his present work of bringing sinners to himself, he considers it a part of his reward that we would be laborers together with him. He sees the travail of his soul in his working people, as well as in the sinners whom they bring to him. Thus he has a double reward, and he is as much glorified in the love, compassion, and zeal of his servants as in the harvest that they reap. Just as a father smiles to see his little children imitating him and trying to assist him in his work, so Jesus is pleased to see our lowly efforts to honor him. It is his joy to see the eyes that he has opened weeping with him over the unrepentant. It is his joy to hear the tongue that he has loosed speaking in prayer and in proclaiming the gospel. Yes, it brings him joy to see any whom he has restored and healed who are now busy as members of righteousness in his service. Jesus is glad to save sinners by any means, but he is most of all glad to save them by the means of those who are already saved. Thus he blesses the prodigal sons and the servants of the household at the same time. He gives salvation to the lost, and upon his own called and chosen ones he puts the honor of being used for the greatest purposes under heaven. It is more honorable to save a soul from death than to rule an empire. All the saints can have such honor. The main subject of this chapter is our association with Christ in pious labor, but we must consider other themes that lead up to it. First, I would call your attention to a memorable miracle that was wrought by our Lord in the burying place at Bethany. Second, I want to look at a remarkable spectacle, for in Lazarus we see a living man wearing the garments of the dead. Third, we will learn something from a timely assistance which the friends around the grave gave to the risen man after the Lord had said, Unbind him and let him go. Then, by way of conclusion, we will observe a practical hint that this whole subject gives to those who are willing to hear what Christ their Lord will speak to them. Oh, that the Spirit of God may make us quick of understanding to perceive the mind of the Lord, and then diligent of heart to carry out His will. Come, O blessed Spirit, and help your servant at this hour. First, then, this chapter records a memorable miracle. Maybe that writer is correct, who says that the raising of Lazarus is the most remarkable of all our Lord's mighty works. We cannot measure miracles, for they are all displays of the infinite, but in some respects the raising of Lazarus stands at the head of the wonderful series of miracles with which our Lord astonished and instructed the people. Yet I am not in error when I state that it is a type of what the Lord Jesus is constantly doing at this hour in the realm of mind and spirit. Did he raise the naturally dead? He still raises the spiritually dead. Did he bring back a body from corruption? He still delivers people from loathsome sins. 
The life-giving miracle of grace is as truly astounding as the life-giving miracle of power. As this was in some respects a more remarkable resurrection than the raising of Jairus's daughter, or of the young man at the gate of Nain, so there are certain conversions and regenerations that seem more astonishing than others to the observing mind. I notice the memorableness of this miracle in the subject of it, because the man had been dead four days. To give life to one about whom his own sister said, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, John 11.39, was a deed filled with divine power. Corruption had set in, but he who is the resurrection and the life stopped and reversed the process. The sisters had probably perceived the traces of decay upon the body of their beloved brother before they buried him, for it's likely that they delayed the funeral as long as possible under an undefined hope that perhaps their Lord would appear upon the scene. In that warm climate, the ravages of decay are extremely rapid, and before many hours, the loving sisters were compelled to admit, as Abraham had done before them, Genesis 23 4, that they must bury their dead out of their sight. It was their full conviction that the terrible consuming of corruption had begun. What then can be done? When someone has very recently died, and every vein and artery is in its place, and every separate organ is still perfect, it might seem possible for the lifeblood to flow again. It somewhat resembles an engine that was just recently in full action, and although it is now motionless, the valves, wheels, and belts are still there. Simply start it up again, reapply the moving force, and the machinery will quickly begin to work. However, when corruption comes, every valve is displaced, every wheel is broken, every belt is severed, and the very metal itself is eaten away. What can be done now? Certainly it would be an easier task to make a completely new person out of the earth than to take this poor, corrupted corpse that has turned to worm's meat and make it live again. This was the marvelous miracle of divine power that our glorious Lord performed upon His friend Lazarus. There are some men who are represented by this situation. Not only are they devoid of all spiritual life, but corruption has set in. Their character has become abhorrent, their language is filthy, and their attitude is terrible. The pure mind desires to have them put out of sight, for they cannot be endured in any decent society. They are so far gone from original righteousness as to be an offense to all, and it doesn't seem possible that they could ever be restored to purity, honesty, or hope. When the Lord, in infinite compassion, comes to deal with them and gives them life, then even the most skeptical must confess, This is the finger of God. Exodus 8, 19. What else can it be? Such a profane sinner became a believer. Such a blasphemer became a man of prayer. Such a proud, conceited babbler received the kingdom as a little child. Surely God Himself must have worked this wonder. Now is fulfilled the word of the Lord by Ezekiel. Scripture, You will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. Ezekiel 37, 13.
We thank our God that He gives life to the dry bones whose hope was lost. However far gone a person may be, he cannot be beyond the reach of the Lord's right arm of mighty mercy. The Lord can change the vilest of the vile into the most holy of the holy. Blessed be His name, we have seen Him do this, and therefore we have encouraging hope for the worst men and women. The next notable point about this miracle is the clear human weakness of its worker. He who had to deal with this dead man was himself a man. I don't know of any passage of Scripture wherein the manhood of Christ is more frequently manifested than in this narrative. The Godhead is, of course, eminently noticeable in the resurrection of Lazarus, but the Lord seemed as if He deliberately at the same time set His humanity to the front. According to the forty-seventh verse, the Pharisees said, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. They are to be blamed for denying His Godhead, but not for dwelling upon His manhood, for every part of this exceptional scene before us made it obvious. When our Lord had seen Mary's tears, we read that He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. John 11.33. Thus He showed the sorrows and the sympathies of a man. We cannot forget those memorable words, Jesus wept. John 11.35. Who except a person would weep? Weeping is a human characteristic. Jesus never seems to be more completely bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh than when He weeps. Next, our Lord asked a question, Where have you laid Him? John 11.34. He veils His omniscience. As a man, He seeks information. Where is the body of His dear departed friend? Even as Mary later said about Jesus, Tell me where you have laid Him, John 20, 15, so the Lord Jesus asked for information as someone who did not know. As if to show his manhood even more fully, when they told him where Lazarus was buried, he went that way. He didn't need to go. He could have spoken a word where he was, and the dead would have risen. Could he not just as easily have performed the miracle from a distance as he could have done by being nearby? Being man, Jesus again being deeply moved within came to the tomb. John 11:38. When he reached the spot, he saw a cave whose mouth was closed by a huge stone, and he sought human assistance. He cried, "Remove the stone." John 11:39. Certainly, he who could raise the dead could have rolled away the stone by speaking a word. Yet, as if needing help from those around him, the man, Christ Jesus, reminded us again of Mary at his own tomb, saying, Who will roll away the stone for us? Mark 16, 3. With that done, our Lord lifted up his eyes to heaven and addressed the Father in prayer, mingled with thanksgiving. How like a man is all this! He takes the petitioner's place. He speaks with God as a man speaks with his friend. Exodus 33:11 but still as a man did not this humble revelation of the manhood make the miracle all the more remarkable 
The time came when the flame of the Godhead flashed forth from the unconsumed bush of the manhood. The voice of him who wept was heard in the chambers of death's shadow, and out came the soul of Lazarus to live again in the body. The weakness of God, 1 Corinthians 1.25, proved itself to be stronger than death and mightier than the grave. It is a parable of our own situation as workers for Christ. Sometimes we see the human side of the gospel, and we wonder whether it can do many mighty works. When we tell the story, we fear that it will seem repetitious to the people. We wonder how it can be that truth so simple, so familiar, and so common would have any special power about it. Yet it is so. Out of the foolishness of preaching, the wisdom of God shines forth. 1 Corinthians 1.21 The glory of the eternal God is seen in that gospel that we preach in much trembling and weakness. Let us therefore glory in our infirmity. 2 Corinthians 12.9 Because the power of God does all the more evidently rest upon us. Let us not despise our day of small things. Zechariah 4.10, nor be dismayed because we are obviously so weak. This work is not for our honor, but for the glory of God, and any circumstance that tends to make that glory more evident is to be rejoiced in. Let us consider for a few moments the active cause of this resurrection. Nothing was used by our Lord but His own word of power. Jesus cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. John 11:43. He simply repeated the dead man's name and added two commanding words. This was simple enough. Dear friends, a miracle seems all the greater when the means used are apparently feeble and not well adapted to the working of such a great result. It is the same way in the salvation of men. It is marvelous that such poor preaching should convert such great sinners. Many are turned unto the Lord by the simplest, plainest, and most unadorned preaching of the gospel. They may not hear much, but the little that they hear is from the lips of Jesus. Many converts find Christ by a single short sentence. The divine life is carried into their hearts upon the wings of a brief text. The preacher had no eloquence, and he made no attempt at it, but the Holy Spirit spoke through him with a power that eloquence could not rival. The Lord told the dry bones to live, and they came to life. Ezekiel 37 I delight to preach my Master's gospel in the plainest terms. I would speak even more simply if I could. I would borrow the language of Daniel concerning Belshazzar's robe of scarlet and his chain of gold, and I would say to eloquence, Keep your gifts for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. Daniel 5.17 The power to awaken the dead does not lie in the wisdom of words, but in the Spirit of the living God. 1 Corinthians 2.4 The voice is Christ's voice, and the word is the word of Him who is the resurrection and the life. And therefore, people are made alive by it. Let us rejoice that it is not needful for us to become orators in order for the Lord Jesus to speak through us. 
Simply let the Spirit of God rest upon us, and we will be endowed with power from on high. Luke 24:49. So that even the spiritually dead will hear the voice of the Son of God through us, and they who hear will live. The result of the Lord's working must not be missed, for it is a main element of wonder in this miracle. Lazarus did come forth, and he did so immediately. The thunder of Christ's voice was attended by the lightning of his divine power, and immediately life flashed into Lazarus, and he came forth. Bound as he was, the power that had enabled him to live enabled him to shuffle forth from the ledge of rock upon which he lay, and there he stood with nothing of death about him but his grave clothes. He left the stale air of the sepulchre and returned to know once more the things that are done under the sun. And it happened quickly. It is one of the great glories of the gospel that it doesn't require weeks or months for people to be given life and to make new creations of them. Salvation can come to them at once. The person who stepped into this church this morning, immersed in rebellion against his God, and apparently impervious to divine truth, may nevertheless go down those steps with his sins forgiven and with a new spirit imparted to him, in the strength of which he will begin to live unto God as he never lived before. Do you speak of a nation being born at once, as if it were impossible? Isaiah 66, 8. It is possible with God. The divine power can send a flash of life all around the world at any instant to give life to multitudes of His chosen. We are dealing now with God, not with men. Man must have time to prepare his machinery and get it into working order, but it is not so with the Lord. We, on our part, must seek after a preacher and find a place for him where the people can meet to hear. But when the Lord Jesus works, the action is done immediately, with or without the preacher and inside or outside the place of assembly. If we had to feed five thousand, we would need to grind the wheat at the mill and bake the bread in the oven, and then we would be a long time in delivering the loaves in baskets. But the master takes the barley cakes and breaks them, and as he breaks them the food is multiplied. Then he handles the fish, and it seems as if a multitude of fish had been in his hands instead of a few small fish. Matthew 15:34 Behold the vast multitude receives nourishment from the little supply that has been so abundantly increased Trust in God my brethren in all your work of love trust in the unseen power that stood behind the manhood of Christ and that still stands behind the simple gospel that we preach The everlasting word may seem to be weak and feeble it might groan and weep and seem as if it could do no more, but it can raise the dead and raise them at once. You can be sure of this. The effect that this miracle produced upon those who saw it was very remarkable, for many believed in the Lord Jesus. Besides this, the miracle of raising Lazarus was so unquestioned and unquestionable a fact that it brought the Pharisees to a point that they resolved to make an end of Christ. They had grumbled and muttered at His earlier miracles, but this one 
had struck such a blow that in their wrath they determined that he should die. No doubt this miracle was the immediate cause of the crucifixion of Jesus. It marked a point of decision when people must either believe in Christ or become his deadly foes. O brethren, if the Lord is with us, we will see multitudes believing through Jesus. If the rage of the enemy becomes more intense because of this, let us not fear it, for there will come a last decisive struggle, and it might be brought on by some amazing display of the divine power in the conversion of the chief of sinners. Let us hope so. Let us not be afraid that Armageddon should be fought, for it will end in victory. Scripture, you will see greater things than these. John 1, 50. Second, I ask you to observe a remarkable spectacle. A notable miracle was unquestionably performed, but it required a finishing touch. The man was completely raised to life, but was not completely freed. Here is a living man in the garments of death. That cloth around his head and other grave clothes were completely consistent with death, but they were very much out of place when Lazarus began to live again. It's a dismal sight to see a living man wearing his burial clothes, but hundreds of times we have seen in this church people made alive by divine grace who still had their grave clothes upon them. Such was their condition that unless you observed carefully, you would think they were still dead. Yet within them the lamp of heavenly life was burning. Some said, He's dead, look at his garments. But the more spiritual people cried, He's not dead, but these grave clothes must be loosed. It is a remarkable spectacle, a living man restricted with the garments of death. Moreover, he was a moving man bound hand and foot. I don't know how he moved. Some of the old writers thought that he glided, as it were, through the air, and that this was part of the miracle. I think he may have been so bound that although he could not freely walk, he could shuffle along like a man in a sack. I know that I have seen souls bound and yet moving. They were moving intensely in one direction, yet were not capable of moving an inch in another. Have you not seen someone so truly alive that he wept, mourned, and groaned over sin, yet he could not believe in Christ, but seemed bound hand and foot as to faith? I have seen him determined to give up his sin and crush a bad habit under his foot, yet he could not lay hold on a promise or receive a hope. Lazarus was free enough in one way, for he came out of the tomb, but the blinding cloth was around his head. This is how it is with many awakened sinners, for when you try to show them some encouraging truth, they cannot see it. This was a repulsive sight, but captivating. Mary and Martha must have been delighted to see their brother even though he was wrapped in grave clothes. He stunned the crowd, yet they were drawn to him. A man fresh from the sepulchre, dressed in grave clothes, is a sight that most people would want to avoid. Yet people would travel around the world to see a man restored from death, and such a man was Lazarus. Mary and Martha felt their hearts dancing within them because their dear brother was alive. Notwithstanding the repulsiveness of the spectacle, it must have pleased them beyond anything they had seen, except the Lord Himself.
We too may have come near to a poor sinner. It was enough to frighten anybody to hear his groans and to see his weeping. Yet he was so dear to every true heart that we loved to be with him. I have sometimes spoken with broken-hearted sinners, and they have pretty nearly broken my heart. Yet after they had left the room, I wished I could see a thousand like them. Poor creatures, they fill us with sorrow, yet flood us with joy. This was a man who was strong, yet helpless. He was strong enough to come forth from his grave, yet he could not take the cloth away from his own head, for his hands were bound. He could not go to his house, for his feet were wrapped. Unless some kind hand unbound him, he would remain a living mummy. He had enough strength to leave the grave, but he could not be released from his grave clothes. In the same way, we have seen men who were strong, for the Spirit of God has been in them, and has moved them mightily. They have been passionately in earnest, even to the point of agony. Yet the newborn life has been so weak in other ways that they seemed to have been mere infants in swaddling clothes. They have not been able to enjoy the liberty of Christ, nor enter into communion with Christ, nor work for Christ. They have been bound hand and foot. Work and progress have both been beyond them. This seems to be a strange result of a miracle. The bands of death were loosed, but not the bands of linen. Motion was given, but not movement of hand or foot. Strength was bestowed upon him, but not the power to undress himself. Such anomalies are common in the world of grace. This brings us to consider a timely assistance that we are called upon to give. Oh, for wisdom to learn our duty and grace to do it at once! Let us consider what these things are that often bind newly converted sinners. Some of them are blindfolded by the cloth around their head. They are very ignorant, sadly lacking in spiritual wisdom, and the eye of faith is darkened. Yet the eye is there, and Christ has opened it. It is the business of the servant of God to remove the cloth that bandages it. We can do so by teaching the truth, explaining it, and clearing up difficulties. This is a simple thing to do, and it is very necessary. Now that they have life, we will teach them its purpose. Besides that, they are bound hand and foot, so are not able to act. We can show them how to work for Jesus. Sometimes these bands are those of sorrow, for they are in dreadful fear about the past. We must unbind them by showing them that the past is blotted out. They are wrapped about by many yards of doubt, mistrust, anguish, and remorse. Unbind them and let them go. Another hindrance is the band of fear. Oh, says the poor soul, I am such a sinner that God must punish me for my sin. Tell him about the great doctrine of substitution. Unwrap this cloth by the assurance that Jesus took our sin, and that by his scourging we are healed. Isaiah 53 5. It is wonderful what liberty comes by that precious truth when it is well understood. The repentant soul fears that Jesus will refuse his prayer. Assure him that Jesus will certainly not cast out any who come to him, 
John 6.37 Let fear be taken from the soul by the promises of Scripture, by our testimony to their truth, and by the Spirit bearing witness to the doctrine that we try to proclaim. People are very often bound with the grave clothes of prejudice. They used to think certain things before conversion, and they are very apt to carry their dead thoughts into their new life. Go and tell them that things are not what they seem. Scripture, the old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 God is overlooking their days of ignorance. Acts 17.30 But now they must change their minds about everything and no longer judge according to the sight of the eyes and the hearing of the ears. Some of them are bound with the grave clothes of sinful habits. It's a noble work to help a drunkard remove the detestable bands that prevent him from making the slightest progress toward better things. Let us tear off every band from ourselves so that we can more easily help others to be free. The bonds of evil habits can still remain upon people who have received the divine life, until those habits are pointed out to them and the sinfulness of them is shown. And so they are helped by understanding, prayer, and example to be free. Who among us would want Lazarus to continue wearing his burial clothes? Who would want to see a regenerated person fall into sinful habits? When the Lord gives life, the main point of the business is secured, and then we can come in to loose every bond that would restrict and hinder the free action of the divine life. But why are these cloths left? Why didn't the miracle that raised Lazarus also loosen his grave clothes? I answer, that it is because our Lord Jesus is always prudent regarding miracles. There are many false wonders, but true miracles are few and far between. In the Church of Rome, such miracles that they claim are usually an abundant waste of power. When St. Swithin supposedly made it rain for forty days so that his corpse would not be carried into the church, it was much ado about very little. When St. Denis supposedly walked a thousand miles carrying his head in his hands, one is inclined to ask why he could not have journeyed just as well if he had set it on his neck. When another saint supposedly crossed the sea on a tablecloth, would it not have been an improvement if he had borrowed a boat? Rome can afford to be free with her counterfeit coins. The Lord Jesus never works a miracle unless there is an object to be gained that could not be obtained in any other way. When the enemy said, Command that these stones become bread, Matthew 4, 3, our Lord refused, for it was not a proper occasion for a miracle. Lazarus cannot be raised out of the grave except by a miracle, but he can be unbound without a miracle and therefore human hands must do it. If there is anything in the kingdom of God that we can do ourselves, it is foolish to say, May the Lord do it, for He will do nothing of the kind. If you can do it, you will do it. If you refuse to do it, you will be neglectful of your duty. I suppose that those grave clothes were left on Lazarus so that those who came to unbind him could be sure that he was the same man who died. Some of them may have said, This is Lazarus, 
for these are the grave clothes that we wrapped around him. There's no deceit here. This is the very same man who was laid out and prepared by us for burial. I remember putting in that stitch, someone says. I remember that stain in the linen, declares another. From coming so near to Lazarus, they would be equally well assured that he was really alive. They saw his living flesh rising as each strip of cloth was removed. They observed his breathing and the flush that reddened his cheeks. For some such reason, our Lord allows the awakened sinner to remain in a measure of bondage so that we can know that the person is the same one who was really dead in trespasses and sins. He was no pretend sinner, for the traces of his sins are still upon him. You can see by what he says that his training was not the best. The remnants of the old nature show what manner of man he used to be. Every now and then the smell of the sepulchre meets your nose. The mold of the grave has stained his grave clothes. His death was true, and was not a mere imitation of death. So too we know that he is alive, for we hear his sighs and cries, and we understand that his experience is that of a living child of God. Those desires, that searching of heart, and that longing to be thoroughly right with God, we know what these things mean. It is a big help to us in discerning spirits and in being assured of the work of God upon any person for us to come into living contact with those imperfections that it is to be our privilege to remove under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I still think that the main purpose was so these disciples could enter into rare fellowship with Christ. They could each say, not proudly, but still joyfully, Our Lord raised Lazarus, and I was there and helped to unbind him from his grave clothes. Maybe Martha could later say, I took the napkin from my brother's dear face. Maybe Mary could add, I helped to unbind his hands. It is very precious to hope that we have done anything to cheer, teach, or sanctify a soul. There can be no praise for us in this, but there can be much comfort for us concerning this. Brothers and sisters, will you not share in this dear delight? Will you not seek the lost sheep? Luke 15, 3-7. Will you not sweep the house for the lost money? Luke 15, 8-10. Will you not at the very least help with the feast for the long-lost son? Luke 15, 11-32. This, you see, gives you such an interest in a saved person. Those who are very observant tell us that those whom we serve may forget us, but those who serve us are firmly bound to us by their deed. You can do many kind things for people who will be entirely ungrateful, but those who have done the kind act do not forget. When the Lord Jesus has us help others, it is partly so that they will love us for what we have done, but it is even more so that we will love them because we have helped them. Is there any love like the love of a mother to her child? Is it not the strongest affection on earth? Why does a mother love her child? Did the little child ever provide even a penny's worth of service to the mother? Certainly not. It is the mother who does everything for the child. In the same way, 
the Lord binds us to the new converts in love by allowing us to help them. The church is made entirely of one piece and is woven together all throughout by the workmanship of love. Oh, you who are lacking love, it is evident that you do not labor with a pure desire to benefit others, for if you did, you would be filled with affection for them. Before we leave this point of timely assistance, let us ask why we should remove these grave clothes. It's enough to say that the Lord has told us to do so. He commands us to unbind him and let him go. He tells us to comfort the faint-hearted and help the weak. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. If he commands it, we do not need any other reason. I hope, my dear friends, that you will get to work at once, for the king's business requires haste. 1 Samuel 21.8. And we are traitors if we delay. We should also do this because it is very possible that we helped to bind those grave clothes upon our friend. Some of the people who were at Bethany that day had assisted in the burial of Lazarus, and surely the ones who helped to bind Lazarus should also help to unbind him. Many Christians before their conversions have helped to make sinners worse by their examples, and possibly after their conversions they might have assisted in binding new converts in the bonds of doubt and sorrow by their indifference and lack of zeal. In any case, you might have said of many people, He will never be saved. In doing so, you have wrapped him in grave clothes. The Lord never told you to do that, but you did it on your own. And now that he tells you to remove those grave clothes, will you not be quick to do so? I remember when somebody lent a hand to take the grave clothes off me, and therefore I desire to help take the grave clothes off others. If we cannot repay what we owe to the precise individual who did good to us, we can at least repay it by working for the general benefit of seekers. There, said a benevolent man as he gave help to a poor man, take that money, and when you can pay it back, give it to the next person you meet who is in the same situation as yourself, and tell him he is to pay it to another destitute person as soon as he can afford it. In this way, my money will go traveling on for many days. That's what our Lord does. He sends someone to loose my bonds. Then I am helped to set another free. And he releases a third, and so on to the end of the world. God grant that we may not be negligent in this heavenly service. Lastly, here is a practical hint. If the Lord Jesus Christ used the disciples to relieve Lazarus of his grave clothes, do you not think he would use us if we were ready for such work? Observe Saul, now known as the Apostle Paul. The Lord Jesus has struck him down, but the lowly Ananias must visit him and baptize him so that he can receive his sight. There is Cornelius. He has been seeking the Lord, and the Lord is gracious to him but he must first hear Peter. Over there is a wealthy Ethiopian riding in his chariot, and he's reading the book of the prophet Isaiah, but he cannot understand it until Philip comes. Lydia has a ready heart, but only Paul can lead her to the Lord Jesus. 
The instances of souls blessed by human instrumentality are innumerable, but I will conclude by calling attention to one passage upon which I want to briefly dwell. When the prodigal came home, the father did not say to one of his servants, Go and meet him. No, but we read, While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Luke 15:20. He did all this himself. The father personally forgave him and restored him. But we read further on that the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. Luke 15, 22-23. The loving father could have done all this himself, but he wanted all the servants in the house to be of one accord with him in the joyful reception of his son. The great Lord could do everything for a sinner himself, but he doesn't do so because he wants all of us to be in fellowship with him. Come, fellow servants, and bring forth the best robe. I am never happier than when I preach the righteousness of Christ and try to put it upon the sinner. What? someone exclaims, you can't put it on. Yet the parable says, bring out the best robe and put it on him. I not only bring it out and show it, but by the Holy Spirit's help I try to put it on the sinner. I hold it up before him, just as you hold up a friend's coat to help him put it on. You have to guide the poor sinner's hand into the sleeve and lift it up upon his shoulders, or he might never get it on. You are to teach him, comfort him, encourage him, and in fact help him to be dressed like one of the family. Then cannot we also bring out the ring? Certainly the father should have put the ring upon his son's hand, but no, he tells his servants to do that. He says to them, Put a ring on his hand. Introduce him into fellowship and make him glad with the communion of saints. We must guide the new convert into the joys of Christian society, letting him know what it is to be married to Christ and joined to his people. We must put honor upon these redeemed ones, and we must adorn those who once were degraded. Let us not neglect to put shoes on his feet, too. He has a long journey to go. He is to be a pilgrim, and we must help him prepare his feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Ephesians 6:15. His feet are new in the Lord's ways. We must show him how to run on the master's errands. As for the fatted calf, it is our duty to feed the redeemed ones. As for the music and the dancing, it is our honor to make the hearts of the repentant ones glad by rejoicing over them. There is plenty to be done. O oh, my brethren, try and do some of it today. Some people will immediately be looking out for an inquirer, and they will try to put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. I wish that more of you did this, but if you cannot do so right here and now, begin as soon as you can. Begin a holy work for the converted who are not yet brought into liberty. There are children of God who do not yet have a shoe on their foot. There are plenty of shoes in the house, but no servant has put them on. When I look around, I see some who do not have the ring on their hand. Oh, that I might have the privilege of putting it on!
I urge you, brethren, by the blood that bought you, by the love that holds you, and by the supreme abundance that supplies your need, go forth and do what your master graciously allows and commands you to do. Loose Lazarus. Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and let us all eat and rejoice with our Father. Amen.